Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for waking us up, for giving us life in Christ. Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us a hunger for your word, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, that this would not be an idle word for us, but it would be our life and our bread today. Spirit, teach us your word and help us, Lord, to know how, with your help, we can apply it, even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to have you guys here. As you know, or you may, most of you probably know, we've been studying the book of Hebrews as a church this whole school year, so we're sort of in the middle of it. And we've chosen with the men's study to zero in on Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith, this chapter full of heroes of the faith. And so our title this semester is By Faith, Believing God in an Unbelieving World. If you missed Paul Goebel's intro last week, uh, I'd encourage you to go listen to it online. Paul gave us a number of questions to frame our study, but one that I think was helpful was, in an unbelieving world, what does it mean for us to believe? So through the life and through the lens of all these different characters in Hebrews 11, we're going to consider what authentic faith looks like. These people in Hebrews 11 were commended by God, not for their works, but for their faith. By faith, they were commended. By faith, they were made righteous in him. And so we want to be encouraged by their faith as we look at it. And even more, we want to be encouraged by God's faithfulness. So it seems like the right morning, kind of cold and rainy to talk about Cain and Abel. And that's what we're going to do as we see in their lives these portraits of unbelief and faith or unbelief and belief. So follow along as I read our scripture this morning, first from Genesis 4, 1 through 17, and then in a moment, Hebrews 11, verse 4. First, Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And then one verse in Hebrews 11, verse 4. 
By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So who were Cain and Abel? That's a good starter question. They were the first children of Adam and Eve. They were the first children born into this world and into the sin of Adam. They were born outside the Garden of Eden, where the world was already feeling the effects of the fall, where God no longer walked among them in the cool of the day. So if they couldn't see it with their own eyes, they at least could have heard it heard about it from their parents, about these cherubim and the flaming sword that were there guarding the way back into the Garden of Eden. And so Cain and Abel were really the first people born into this great question. How can we as sinners approach a holy God? Cain was a farmer like his father Adam. Abel was a shepherd like many great men in the Bible. Think of Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Cain was a murderer. Abel was a victim. Cain's infamous for being the first murderer, and yet Genesis 4 reminds us that murder was actually not the root, but the fruit of Cain's life. So before Cain and Abel did anything, they were worshipers. Like you and I, they were people created to worship God and find their life in Him. So the story opens at the altar. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but that's what I'm going to call it. Life at the altar. Faith and unbelief at the altar. With the brothers bringing their offerings to the Lord. More than anything, it's a story about faith or unbelief and worship. So first I want us to see faith and unbelief at the altar in the context of worship. You think about this question, why did the Lord accept Abel's offering and reject Cain? A lot of ink has been spilled on that. It's really kind of the question in the passage. So was it about what they brought? Did God accept Abel because he brought an animal, because he shed blood? Did God reject Cain because he brought the fruit of the ground? Is God more interested in flocks than fruits? If Cain had brought a sheep, would God have accepted him? Or if Abel had brought wheat, would God have rejected him? Is God only interested in what we bring? I don't think so. The Levitical laws that would outline these kinds of offerings were not really available to Cain and Abel. They hadn't been written yet, so to speak. But even by those standards, Cain's offering is acceptable as a tribute to the Lord. So faithful worship that pleases God has to go deeper than outward expression, outward gifts. So was it about how Cain and Abel brought their offerings? This seems to be more the heart of the matter. So on the surface, their worship seems more similar than different. They both brought an offering, but beneath the surface, their hearts were radically different. And Hebrews 11.4 draws this out for us because it says, Abel's offering was more acceptable because of his faith. Look at it again with me. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. The implication is that Cain was rejected because of his unbelief or his lack of faith. So what does this mean? When it comes to worship, we can approach God by faith or unbelief. So what's the difference? 
In Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says, this people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So Jesus actually quoted this passage and applied it to the religious leaders. And what it means is it's entirely possible for us to do worship as lip service. It's entirely, it's entirely possible for us to bring our bodies to church, to put our money in the plate, and for our hearts to be far from him. I've, as a worship leader who plays guitar and sings, I've sung more songs than I can think in 20 plus years of doing it. And so sometimes I feel like a worship jukebox, you know. And, and this week, a, an old song came to mind. It's one of those contemporary songs. It's no longer contemporary, so what would you call it? Um, but the song, The Heart of Worship, which I think reflects some of what we're talking about pretty well, because in that song, it says, I'll, I'll bring you more than a song, because a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. Maybe you're going to sing with me, I don't know. Uh, I'm coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. I don't know what you think about the song, but I think the sentiment there reflected is helpful because really we could say Cain brought a song. Abel brought more than a song. Abel understood the heart of worship. Cain didn't. I, I sometimes wonder what Adam and Eve told their boys. These are the things we don't have in scripture. But you just imagine, surely they, they told Cain and Abel about the Garden of Eden and the day the world changed. You imagine them, get the boys, stop fighting, sit down for a minute. Boys, we sinned. We hid from God, we made excuses, but the Lord pursued us and he disciplined us and ultimately he provided for us. He actually promised that one day someone was gonna come to crush the serpent's head and in the meantime, these animal skins that we're wearing are a constant reminder that sin demands a payment. The brothers should have known that worshiping by faith means coming humbly to God because sinners can't make demands, right? Sinners don't deserve God's favor. So faith means trusting that God will be faithful to his promises to make us acceptable in his sight. It's not about me being faithful and somehow earning his acceptance. Faith means realizing worship is not about us. It's all about him. So by God's grace, Abel approached the Lord by faith. He didn't just bring a portion of his flock. He brought the firstborn and the fat portion, the precious portion. So the value of his offering reflects his faith and how he values the Lord. And in contrast, Cain didn't bring the first fruits or the best portion from the fields. He just brought an offering. That's what the text seems to say. He was going through the motions. He was doing what he was supposed to do. And we know that Cain's heart wasn't in the right place because just look at how he responds when things don't go well. Look at verses five and six. But for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So Cain's anger reveals the condition of his heart. He didn't come humbly, trusting in God's faithfulness. He came arrogantly, assuming that the Lord owed him something. And the Lord responds, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Can we see the blindness of unbelief? Unbelief deflates our view of God. So we get angry with him when we shouldn't. And unbelief inflates our view of ourselves. So we minimize the danger of sin. Sin's not crouching at the door waiting to destroy us. We can manage it. We can handle it. 
So what is the Lord telling us about faith and unbelief and worship? One thing is unbelief is tricky because sometimes it runs away from God, which is probably easier to see. And sometimes unbelief runs to him, apparently. Adam and Eve tried to run away from the Lord, hide, cover themselves, don't worship God, we're afraid. Cain came to the Lord, or so it would seem, came to worship, but on his own terms. And we wouldn't naturally think of Cain as a legalist, but just see if the label fits. C.J. Mahaney in in a book, The Cross-Centered Life, writes this, legalism is essentially self-atonement for the purpose of self-glorification and ultimately for self-worship. It's the pinnacle of pride for me to assume that by my good works, I could ever morally obligate God to forgive me, justify me, or accept me. Something like that going on with Cain. Cain got angry because the Lord rejected his self-salvation project and then accepted his brother. Cain didn't see the dangers of unbelief and legalism, the sins crouching at his door. Do we see the dangers? Do we realize that we're tempted to come to God on our own terms? We're tempted to say, Lord, I, I hear what you're saying, but I can do this myself. I can clean myself up. Maybe sometimes we sin and we think, I can't come back to God. First, I got to do something good. Then I'll come back to God. Jesus, you don't need to die for me. Look at what I'm bringing to you. That's basically what legalism says. Jesus, what you did is not enough. When we try to earn something from God, it's basically unbelief. It's, it's self-worship. But we worship God by faith when we wholeheartedly believe John 14, 6, that familiar word of Jesus, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a great verse for evangelism, but we shouldn't leave it there. It's a great verse for every day of the Christian life because the only way into God's presence is through Jesus Christ. If we want to worship him, We come by grace alone, through faith alone. As we sing sometimes, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So what faith does is it re-centers our lives on Jesus Christ. He becomes the sun at the center of the solar system, holding everything together. And faith connects us with him and unleashes his transforming power in our lives. So more and more, we want to worship him because he is the most worthy. And we want to love him because he is the most lovely. And you see, worship's the deepest root in Genesis 4 and in every one of our lives. At the end of the day, Abel loved and worshiped God. And Cain loved and worshiped himself. Charles Spurgeon once said, when a man admires himself, he never adores God. The problem is what happens at the altar, what happens in worship, never stays at the altar. What happens at the altar tragically follows Cain and Abel out into the field. So our relationship with God always shapes our relationships with others. In verses eight and nine, we read this. Cain spoke to Abel's brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So in his commentary on Genesis, Bruce Waltke writes this, says Cain fails at the altar. And because he fails at the altar, he fails in the field. Because he fails in his theology, he will fail in his ethics. Let me say it one more time. Cain fails at the altar. Because he fails at the altar, he fails in the field. Because he fails in his theology, he will fail in his ethics. 
When we only think of Cain as a murderer, we miss it because that's just the horizontal ethical dimension. But Cain had a God problem before he ever had an Abel problem. Martin Luther said, we never break any commandment without breaking the first commandment first. You shall have no other gods before me. So this breaks, and then this breaks. Worship's always the deepest root. So when the Lord has no regard for Cain's offering, Cain doesn't repent or ask why. No, he just explodes with anger. In Proverbs 19.3, we read, A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Isn't that interesting? The insanity of anger. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. That's a word for Cain and for us. Cain, your own folly is ruining your life, and yet your heart rages against the Lord. Brothers, your own folly, my own folly can ruin my life, and yet our heart rages against the Lord. Why? Our heart rages against the Lord when we don't get the job or the girl or the deal or when we lose someone we love or when we get what we want, and then it doesn't seem to be what we thought. And it's so easy to direct our anger at a person. It's harder for us to realize that deep down we're really angry at the Lord. We're angry with him for how he made us or maybe how he didn't make us. We're angry at him for the way he's running the world or our lives. And the Lord asks us questions like, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you come to me and you seek to be right with me, Will you not be right with me? (laughs) But instead of bowing down and saying, Lord, I'm wrong, I repent, forgive me, I want to come to you and find grace and healing and peace, instead of doing that like Cain, we dodge the question. We just keep stewing in our anger. We don't answer the question with our lips, but then we answer it with our lives. We do something in the field, at home, at work, in the community, whatever, that destroys relationships. So like Cain, we often think Abel's the problem. My parents are the problem. My friend's the problem. My wife's the problem. My boss is the problem. But remember Paul in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Brothers, people are not your ultimate problem. People are pawns in a cosmic spiritual battle. The posture of faith is to worship the Lord and to love our neighbor, even to love our enemy. If Abel had a chance, we would have seen his life of worship overflowing into the field. His love for God would have been evident in his love for Cain. This is God's design. By faith, we worship him, and that worship spreads out into every area of our life. The posture of unbelief is to reject the Lord and to reject our neighbor. So Cain's angry at the Lord, and so he takes his anger out on the Lord's image bearer, his brother Abel. Listen to 1 John 3, 11 and 12. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. It's a natural progression. We reject the Lord. Then we reject the people made in his image. If we don't love the Lord, we cannot and will not love our neighbor as we should. Listen to 1 John 4, 19 and 20. It says, we love because he first loved us. See, vertical and then horizontal. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you think about it, in just a few verses, Cain shows us this. He brings an offering. It's like he's saying, I love God. 
And in a few verses, he hates his brother. He murders his brother. The brokenness in our relationship with God inevitably flows into our relationships with others. When we fail at the altar, we fail in the field. We can go through the motions in worship and cause havoc in our relationships the very next moment. So, brothers, I think it's wise for us to consider the fields that we're in. How are we failing in the field, but not in a vacuum? We need to trace those failures back to our life of worship because our relationships do need healing, but that's impossible unless we're experiencing the Lord's restoring grace in a relationship with Him. So think about the conflicts in your life, where you're angry, where you're frustrated, the people that are driving you crazy, where it's tough in the field. And then trace that back, Lord, where perhaps have I gotten off in coming to you, worshiping you by faith? Lord, heal me there, and then let that flow out into my relationships. I've been watching um, the first Star Wars, A New Hope, with my son, Will. It's very exciting for me. Um, He's captivated by it. So now he's constantly hunting these windows when his, like, three-year-old brother is out of the way. He's like, can we watch some more? If John John goes to sleep early tonight, can we watch some more SW? You know? Um, So Will sometimes pauses the movie to ask me a question. And the other day, his question stopped me in my tracks. He says, why does the Empire want to blow up entire planets? Six-year-old. I didn't really know what to say. I mean, how, how do you describe that kind of evil to a six-year-old? And I just, as I thought about it, we've grown way too comfortable with the hatred and violence in our world. We can watch the Death Star blow up Alderaan. <laughs> we can watch genocide unfold on TV. We can watch like hatred and violence, political and otherwise, destroy our country and be unmoved by it. Brothers, we shouldn't make peace with hatred and violence. We need to hear God's piercing questions. Think about them. In Genesis 3, it's where are you? Adam, where are you? It's the vertical question. Our relationship with the Lord is broken, and his question means, I'm coming after you. Where are you? And in Genesis 4, it transitions to, where is your brother? It's a horizontal question. Our relationships with people are broken, and the Lord is saying, I see it. I'm coming after you. Where is your brother? So as the Lord pursues us, how are we going to respond? Will we turn to him by faith and strive to love even our enemies? Or will we press on in unbelief and just add more fuel to the fire that's already burning in the field? Cain tells the Lord he doesn't know where Abel is. That is just a bold faith lie. I mean, right in God's face. I don't know. And then he asks the Lord, am I my brother's keeper? That is such a tragic question. We've actually, as humanity, we've never stopped asking it. It's sort of the question behind what happens in the parable where, you know, the religious guy says, well, who's my neighbor? Try to draw the lines around whom we should love and whom we shouldn't. It's this tragic question we've never stopped asking. So this world filled with hatred and violence is worthy of God's judgment, which leads to our last point. Faith and unbelief at the altar, faith and unbelief at the field, in the field, faith and unbelief at the judgment. When faced with God's judgment, faith and unbelief are worlds apart. See, Abel comes by faith. He's not demanding anything, and the Lord accepts him. God is faithful not to give us what we deserve, which is condemnation for our sin, but to give us what Christ deserves, commendation. We know we're not righteous, but we're covered 
in the righteousness of Christ when we come to him by faith. So accepted by the Lord, Abel had nothing to fear, nothing to prove. And what's amazing, it says, in Hebrews it says, even though he's dead, he still speaks. You know, Abel doesn't say a word in Genesis. He doesn't get a word out. But Hebrews says now he speaks loud and clear. He speaks a word about how we should approach the Lord by faith. And he's the first man to enter heaven. Think about that. Abel, the first man to enter heaven, he speaks of God's faithfulness to save his people. What do you want your life to speak when you're gone? Been around several memorial services recently. So encouraging when you see a man or a woman whose life spoke of Christ and it continues to speak. So Cain comes with unbelief, thinking he deserves something and the Lord rejects him. Unbelief expects commendation, but receives condemnation because ultimately unbelief rejects the Lord's promises, rejects his plan of salvation, says, I'm gonna do it my way. The Lord confronts Cain in verse 10 and then in verses 11 and 12, sort of an echo of Genesis 3, he pronounces a curse. And in verse 13, Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Still, there's no sense that Cain repents. He doesn't mention Abel. And amazingly, the Lord shows him compassion. Cain's mostly just afraid of being killed. He's afraid of what's going to happen to him now. And the Lord essentially promises to protect him. It's hard to imagine a more gracious response to an unrepentant sinner. But the ultimate problem for unbelief is reflected in verse 10. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Without the gracious favor of the Lord, Cain stands naked and exposed before the judgment of God. Now, we hate the idea of God's judgment some of the time because it just doesn't seem right for some reason until something happens to us or to someone close to us. And then we feel it. Injustice cries out for justice. Wrong cries out to be righted. Sin cries out for redemption. No honest person really wants to live in a world that doesn't end up in justice. We want a just God who will make everything right, but if he's really just... How will we survive the judgment? Cain is right. God's punishment is greater than any of us can bear. So we all want to be like Abel. That seems great. In our best moments, maybe we approach that, but we all are perhaps more like Cain. We go through the motions in worship. We get angry at the Lord. We don't love him with everything we've got. We lash out at the neighbor we should love. So what do we do when there's blood on our hands, so to speak? and it's crying out for judgment. The unbeliever should be terrified of God's judgment because sin cries out for judgment. Is there anyone who could help us bear God's punishment? The good news comes in Hebrews 12, 24, just one chapter later. There the author reminds us that by faith we have come to Jesus, calls him the mediator of a new covenant. And it says we've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, than the blood of Abel. The believer should not be terrified because Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, has come. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. He ascended. He reigns now. And he will return. The blood of Jesus that sprinkles believers speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out for judgment for the one who spilled it. But the blood of Jesus cries out for redemption for the ones who trust it. 
So left to ourselves, we're all like Cain, living in this unbelieving world with blood on our hands. But what wondrous love that Jesus Christ would bleed and die to make us his own. He is the true and greater Abel. He brought the perfect sacrifice, his own life. He worshiped the Lord as we should. That worked itself out in the field as it should. And he went to the cross, faced the judgment that we deserved in our place. With blood on his hands, Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? With blood on his hands, Jesus laid down his life for his brothers. It's beautiful. Do you know him? Have you become his brother by faith? Do you worship him? And does that worship flow into every field of your life? Today, the Lord's given us another opportunity to doubt ourselves and believe in him. To believe this good news, as it says in Hebrews 7, 25, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it still speaks. We thank you for the life of your faithful ones who still speak, even though they died, yet they live with you. Lord, we pray that you would guide us as we consider this passage and what it means for us. Lord, would you open up our hearts, help us to see, help us to be honest. Lord, help us to lean in. Uh, we, we pray that you would do your work. Lord, we confess that it's entirely possible for us just to pay lip service to you, to go through the motions and worship. We want to come to you by faith. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would increase our faith, that you would help us to see Jesus. You would help us to see what it looks like to worship you and live by faith, not just when we walk through the doors of a church, but wherever you send us. Lord, you have blessed us and you send us every day. So Lord, as we go today, I, feel, I pray that we would feel and know that we have been blessed and sent to be there for you, to walk by faith, uh, to bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.